Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. One of my driving motivations for the creation of Ideas Roadshow was to offer unique windows into the world of research and scholarship by presenting expert insights from top, internationally recognized authorities whom most have never heard of. This might strike you as a peculiar statement. After all, you might think, if someone is a world-leading expert, surely they're famous. Well, yes and no. Particularly when it comes to science, there's often a very large, and often quite unrecognized, distinction between those who write popular books and are often viewed by the general public as the face of science, and those who spend their time doing cutting-edge research and actually driving the field forward. There's perhaps no better example of what I mean here than the world-renowned astrophysicist Scott Tremaine, whose glittering scientific career is littered with an array of penetrating insights that have profoundly increased our understanding of black holes, galaxies, comets, planetary rings, and much, much more. Even more remarkably, Scott has done all of that while also being one of the scientific world's most influential and productive administrative forces establishing and becoming the first director of the Canadian Institute for Theoretical Astrophysics before serving as the longtime chair of Princeton University's Department of Astrophysics. When I was looking for help to set up Perimeter Institute, Scott was an obvious choice of someone who could assist, and he certainly didn't disappoint, becoming chair of our scientific advisory committee for five years. So while it's possible that you might not have a sufficient appreciation of the depth of his knowledge and understanding, I can assure you that everyone in the world of physics certainly does. Astrophysics and astronomy in particular, was this something that you had always been motivated to explore from from a young age? Uh, No. Uh, In fact, at a young age, I was pretty convinced that astronomy wasn't very interesting. Uh, I originally got interested in physics largely because I realized when I was in high school that Um, Most of the other courses I had to memorize a whole bunch of facts, and I was terrible at it. Uh, Whereas in physics, you know, once you understood the basic concepts, you really didn't have to memorize anything. So uh, I got interested in physics because it was easier and uh, less boring than trying to memorize, you know, the capitals of all the Soviet republics and so forth. Um, Okay, so I I, want to push that a little bit further, but first back up, you, you were... You were uninterested. It almost seemed like you were deliberately uninterested in, in astronomy. You were convinced that that wasn't something that was interesting to you? or, or? Well, I think as astronomy is um, typically presented in popular books, it's, uh, it's a set of facts. Right, it's like stamp collecting. Uh, it's stamp collecting. You're trying to learn about, I don't know, the constellations or people tell you that stars have a particular form, uh, but there's no logic to it. There's no, uh, there's no logical argument that you can follow. Um, And it was only when I started uh, learning about astronomy in the context of physics that I realized that a better way to think of it is that astronomy is taking the laws of physics that you learn in the laboratory and applying them 
to what's going on in the heavens. And you know, the idea that you can do that is actually pretty recent. Of course, Aristotle thought that the material in the heavens was a completely different nature to the material uh, on Earth. And so the idea that you could measure something in the laboratory and then apply it to uh, uh, stars or the sun or, or galaxies, I think is really uh, something relatively recent from the last couple of centuries. Yeah. So you, were, you moved in uh, the physics primarily out of a sense of indolence. Uh, <laughs> were, you, uh, were you aware um, at, a, at the high school level of the sense of these grand principles? I mean, you were aware practically because you didn't have to memorize a bunch of stuff. You could derive right. them and you could understand the principles. But was there an aesthetic appeal to you at the time that um, this is beautiful, this way of looking at the world from a few essential principles and I can then describe everything else? Did that, did that start resonating with you in, in an intellectual way? Um, yeah, I think that first started to uh, be a point of view that I, I, I understood in high school and, of course, much more strongly uh, at, at, at university. Did you have a particular, particularly influential high school teacher? Um, I, I've had a number of influential teachers. The high school teacher I had was influential because he let me fool around in the equipment room after uh, <laughs> school was over. I'm sure that's something that you wouldn't be allowed to do uh, today, but uh, I had a great time you know, hooking up lights and uh, uh, Van de Graaff generators and doing a bunch of other stuff. So um, I think the freedom to uh, play around with equipment was uh, a real asset. Yeah. So then you went off to university and your, your interest deepened. And, um, and how, did the, how did the astrophysical components start to, start to arise in terms of, in terms of your interests? Uh, well, I went to McMaster University, which at the time didn't have any astrophysics, but one of the uh, professors taught a, a second year course on astrophysics. And I began to realize that uh, all of these techniques that uh, I had learned uh, in other contexts, in the context of laboratory experiments, could actually be applied in, uh, uh, in understanding all this, uh, all these facts that I lear learned as a kid about astronomy, and that made them much more interesting. The other appeal of astrophysics in, is that in a certain sense, it's more like a detective story than other branches of physics, because in other branches of physics, if you have something you don't understand, you try to design an experiment that's going to allow you to understand it. In astrophysics, you can't design any experiments. You have a much more incomplete set of clues. And like Sherlock Holmes, you're trying to deduce what must have happened from uh, partial evidence. And uh, the, also like in Sherlock Holmes, the, the game of uh, knowing when you've got the answer, because one answer is so much more compelling or simple or beautiful than all the other possibilities uh, is really something that I think you find more in astrophysics than in other branches of physics. Hmm. So there's a real intellectual resonance with the, with the process of discovery and, and the way you went about actually doing it. Uh, the process of discovery is quite different from in other branches of physics and uh, in some ways better because, as I say, it's more of an intellectual puzzle because the information is so incomplete. Uh, in some ways worse, because if you don't know the answer, 
you may not find out what the answer is for another 10 or 20 years or even never as the uh, quality of the observations improves. Right. I'm going to make a small diversion uh, because I have you here. It's something which has um, puzzled me for a long time and doesn't have a lot to do with normal sorts of conversations that I make. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to get back to all the astrophysics stuff. But a question which, I've, which has long puzzled me is um, your involvement in the administrative side of, of the, the scientific world and the academic world uh, strikes me now and has, has always struck me as very singular. You're one of the few people I know who has been um, a very successful practicing scientist who seems to almost embrace the opportunity to do administrative work. You've, uh, you built uh, an institute for theoretical astrophysics in Toronto. You're chair of the department at Princeton. You always seem to be involved in all these things. I roped you in uh, years ago to uh, do an administrative role. Um, you seem to have this virtually infinite capacity to be able to do administrative stuff um, as well simultaneous to scientific stuff, which, um, uh, which has long puzzled me. It's almost as if you enjoy it. Is, is that true? Uh, well, certainly most uh, physicists wouldn't like to admit that they enjoy it, <laughs> uh, enjoy administration. I, I think that, that uh, um, many people find that they can do administration for a limited period of time, uh, but that if you uh, take on either a heavy administrative job, like being a dean or being a university president or directing a large institute or even a large collaboration. Um, you can do that for a few years, but if you do it for more than five or ten years, you find that it's very hard to get back to doing science effectively. And I think one of the reasons people are nervous about this is that uh, uh, they're very much aware that they've seen many of their colleagues who uh, take on administrative roles and then find that they feel badly because they can't continue to do research and teaching. Um, my own view is that uh, you know the selection process for uh, um, researchers is almost entirely based on your researchability. And one of the difficulties that universities have is that they're trying to pick their administrators from a set of people who weren't selected for any administrative ability. So it's, it's just good fortune if you find somebody who mm -hmm. happens to be good at both. In fact, um, it's even worse than that. I, I would argue that, that, that being proficient at research often, at least statistically, precludes the ability to, uh, uh, <laughs> to, to take a larger view and, and, and be a good administrator on a statistical level. But we can... Uh, you, you might say that, but I couldn't <laughs> possibly comment. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, but I, I think where I've been fortunate in the administrative roles I've had is you know, there are some administrative roles that have a lot of responsibility and no power um, or a lot of responsibility and no budget. And uh, I was fortunate both in the role I had um, as a director of an institute and as a department chair that those were two jobs where you had a tremendous amount of uh, latitude tremendous amount of uh, uh, control and uh, a, large, a large discretionary budget. And first of all, that makes things a lot easier. Second, it makes them a lot more fun. Uh, and it's also true that in both cases, there was a strong belief from the people who were running the place 
that if you let your research go, um, then you weren't doing your job. That is that uh, a big part of your job was to continue to do uh, research. And in many academic administrative jobs, uh, either the load to, that you have to carry is too large to allow you to do that, or the administration just wants to see that the, uh, uh, the forms are filled out and doesn't much care about anything else. And I think one of the, you know, one of the concerns is that uh, the trend in most universities has been to leave department chairs with less and less power uh, over the years. Um, there are many examples of that, but uh, it means that the job of being department chair has become less one of uh, setting the intellectual directions for the department and has become more one of being a minor uh, bureaucrat. Hmm. And just operationally, uh, to close off my diversion, just operationally, um, when you're in these major, or when you were in these major administrative roles, did you spend a day doing science and a day doing administration? Did you, did you cut it down four hours a day here and three hours a day there? Did you spend a week at a time doing these things? I guess that, that, would, that would have been difficult to do administratively. How, how, did you, how did you manage it and did you find that your ability to manage it changed over time and improved? Uh, I think that, that I know people who do split things up that way. There are people who even have two offices and go to one to do their administrative work and another one uh, to do their uh, research work. Um, I never found it was very practical to do that because if you've got somebody you have to meet with and they can meet at three in the afternoon but not 10 in the morning, you can't really tell them, well, I only do administration right. uh, in, the, in, in the morning. Um, I also found that uh, having commitments to do research, to meet with graduate students, uh, to go to seminars and so forth, was good in the sense that it forced you to stop doing the um, uh, to stop doing the administration. Sometimes, you know, the what is the saying? The best is the enemy of the good. Uh, it was better just to uh, uh, get something out that was adequate and then go on and do something else. So moving slowly back into uh, astrophysics. Um, you've done an awful lot of work at planetary scale stuff and you've done a lot of work in galactic scale stuff and I want to talk about both of those and I want to talk about cosmological implications of, of, of the latter as well. Um, I don't pretend to know a great deal about this but it seems to me that that's somewhat unique to be so involved in both of these areas simultaneously. Am I completely wrong there or is, or is, it, uh, or, or is that the case? to have oh. your foot in both camps so, so strongly, in fact. Um, it's unusual, but by no means unique. Uh, I think that, that one of the reasons I've tended to do that is that um, a lot of my research has been focused on dynamics, basically on the, the gravitational n-body problem in various manifestations. So you take n masses and a large number of masses and you let them interact by gravity, and what do they do? And of course, that's a scale invariant problem and so if you understand what's going on if you understand what's going on on a planetary system and then in principle you can understand exactly the same processes in a galaxy or a much larger scale system and one of the things that I find interesting is trying to pursue those analogies to try to say well 
uh, there's a certain phenomenon that takes place in on planetary scales. Is there an analog to that on much larger scales? If not, why not? Right. If so, what can you learn from one that will tell you something about the other? And presumably there are, there are times when, well, none are springing to mind, but, but, but I can imagine that there would be times when you can't actually translate these things, when there are some, when there are some structural impediments, not obviously, or maybe not obviously, not necessarily gravitationally, but there are other factors at play that you can't see or what have you. Oh, ab absolutely. So for example, you know, the Earth has gone around the sun five billion times. The sun has gone around the center of the galaxy a few hundred times. So uh, the, the processes that you have to talk, think about in, in the two different cases can be completely different. The level of, uh, at which you can prove things can be completely different. So, you know, some systems are, in some, some, some respects, galaxies are easier. In some respects, planetary systems are easier, but it's always worth thinking about why they're different, given that it's the same basic problem. So let's focus on, on, on our solar system and give me a sense of what we know writ large about our solar system in terms of how it came to be, how stable it is, what the future of it might be, the, the overall structure of, our, uh, of the solar system that we, that we find ourselves in. Um, the hardest of those questions is the question of how it came to be. Uh, it, it's gotten a lot easier, or we know a lot more since the last couple of decades. It used to be that this was the only solar system, the only planetary system that we knew about. And so all of the, um, the theoretical work was biased by the fact that you couldn't tell whether a particular property of the system was fundamental or accidental. So for example, the largest planets in the solar system, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, are all outside the small planets like the Earth. They're all at distances from the sun that are somewhere between five and 30 times as large as the distance of the Earth from the sun. Well, is that an accident? That is, do giant planets like that have to form out at those distances? Or is it just a peculiar feature of the solar system? Over the last two decades, we've discovered hundreds, probably thousands of uh, planetary systems orbiting other stars. And you can begin to look at the statistics and get a much better idea of what the generic features of planetary systems are. Then the question becomes whether you can explain those generic systems. Uh, so the analogy I sometimes use is, suppose Darwin were uh, developing the theory of evolution and all he'd ever seen was a butterfly. You know, he might get the general idea of the theory of evolution right, but he probably would have put some things in it to explain why evolution could only produce things with thin wings of about this size that fluttered around from plant to plant. Right. Uh, we now know that uh, in addition to butterflies, you know, there are lions and tigers and uh, fish and, and birds. And that just, it doesn't mean that the basic idea of evolution would be different, but uh, you have a much better idea, much better feedback on how it, it must actually have worked from the fact that you see this tremendous variety of systems. So what have we learned? So t tell me some general comments uh, or, or, or bits of general knowledge in terms of uh, solar system formation that we now feel 
well, I'll get to open questions in a moment, but we now feel reasonably confident that, uh, of having understood how things came to be. Well, we know that planets are common. Uh, this wasn't at all obvious. And in fact, in the late 19th century, in the first half of the 20th century, the standard model for planet formation involved a very rare, unusual event, the close passage of two stars, which was likely to have only happened a handful of times in the galaxy. So in that model, the solar system was this extraordinarily unique and unusual uh, uh, configuration that you practically never saw. Was that model, by the way, did that, do you think that arose because there was some a priori motivation to establish a uniqueness, or was that, uh, was that just a, an objective best guess at, at what happens? Uh, I don't know. Uh, it is certainly true that there have been a number of instances where otherwise very respectable physicists have been uh, influenced in their views of the solar system by religious beliefs, but I don't know if that was the case in this particular uh, example. Okay. I'm sorry to interrupt you. So that was an uh, earlier model. Right. So we now know that model had already been superseded in the 1960s, but we now know that that's wrong because if you look at a typical planetary system, a typical star, even with our limited abilities to detect planetary systems around other stars, probably you know, a significant fraction, 10, 20, 30%, depending on how you define it, have planets around them. So we know that planet formation, however it works, is an extremely common process. We also know that uh, most of the systems that we've seen don't look like the solar system. Uh, many of them have giant planets that are much closer uh, to the host star than our own giant planets. In fact, many of them have planets that are much closer to the host star even than Mercury, the innermost planet in our own system. Uh, what we don't know, first of all, is how those form. We don't have a good theory for um, how those formed, and we don't have a good theory for why they're different from our own planetary system. Um, one, of the one of the reasons for the difference, of course, is that it's quite would be quite hard to detect our own planetary system. So if we were uh, sitting on a planet, a few on a planet orbiting a star a few light years away, and we're conducting the same planetary surveys with current technology, we wouldn't be able to see ourselves. We would just barely be able to see Jupiter. Okay, um, and we would be a little puzzled because there's a range of uh, eccentricities in the extrasolar planets, deviations of the orbits from circular. And Jupiter is in a much more circular orbit than most of the analogs to Jupiter around other stars. And so uh, astrophysicists sitting on this hypothetical planet 10 light years away would probably have said that system looks a little unusual because the planet that we see is a lot more circular than most of the planets that we see. Now, maybe that'll go away as the statistics improve. Uh, maybe it's just a, an unusual coincidence that we shouldn't pay any attention to. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. But at the moment, most of the systems that we know of don't look anything like the solar system, and we're not quite sure if that's because of our limited observational ability or because the solar system is special in some way. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the observational techniques and how people find 
these exoplanets and what specifically they're, they're looking for and how they find it, because I'm sure there are lots of people that don't have a, a really clear understanding of that. So the, 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 the problem is, is not so much that planets are faint, but that stars are bright. Uh, if we had a planet like Jupiter that was just floating in interstellar space and was as bright as Jupiter, we could easily detect it with modern telescopes. The problem is that the planets are very close to the host star, and the host star is much brighter. Uh, if you looked at the solar system from outside, the sun would be a billion times brighter than Jupiter and 100 billion times brighter than the Earth. And uh, they're so close that uh, the planets are lost in the glare from the star. Uh, an analogy that's sometimes used is to imagine that you're up in space a few thousand kilometers away looking at a lighthouse and there's a firefly buzzing around the light in the lighthouse. The firefly is the planet, the light is the star, and the problem of detecting the firefly is roughly equivalent to detecting the planet. So you ha can only find them by indirect techniques. By far the most productive so far have been two. One is that um, as the planet uh, orbits the star, um, the star undergoes a much smaller uh, orbit um, influenced by the planet around the center of mass between the planet and the star. That's a very small motion, but it means that the uh, star moves towards you and away from you at speeds of a few meters per second. Um, and that oscillation can be detected from the Doppler shift of the spectral lines in the star if you have a very accurate uh, spectrograph. The technology for developing those spectrographs has improved dramatically over the last couple of decades, and they're now able to detect motions of a meter per second or so. Um, and so you simply look for periodic oscillations in the spectral lines of the star, and from that you can deduce the presence of a planet directly. Um, the second is that in some small fraction of the systems, the planetary orbit is aligned with the line of sight to the star, and that means every time the planet goes in front of the star because the planet is darker than the star. There's a temporary dip, typically lasting, you know, a fraction of an hour or so, um, which uh, is occurring because the planet's blocking out some of the light from the star. Um, that can be confused with uh, other, other signals, just fluctuations because stars twinkle, but it's periodic, so it keeps repeating and eventually you can be confident that you'll find it. Hmm. Um, the irony, I think, is, is not so much the technology is, is now good enough to detect this, it's that planets probably could have been detected much earlier, but the planets that you can see by these techniques are planets that are quite close to the, to the host star, uh, and all the people who were looking for other extrasolar planets in the 60s, 70s, 80s, where the technology was already good enough to detect them, thought, well, we should be looking for systems like our own solar system, in which case neither of these two methods would have worked. Uh, so um, the community, because they'd only seen one planetary system, not unusually made the assumption that all the other ones should look the same. And uh, so nobody really took seriously the idea that you could use these techniques to, do, to deduce planets. Again, it's the analogy of Darwin with the butterfly. Right. If you, no matter how well you understand evolution, if all you've seen is a butterfly, you're not going to predict uh, the existence of fish. 
Right. It's it's almost a. Um, uh, it, it's a play on this uniqueness uh, issue, but but almost inverted to the extent that rather than necessarily assuming that we're the only ones, you're looking for copies of exactly what what we are uh, elsewhere. So it's sort of a, it's a combination of elevating um, our environment to being uh, unique and then iterating that uh, externally. Yes. Yeah, so. Again, this is an example of one of the things that I kind of enjoy about astrophysics, an example of the uh, kind of detective nature uh, to what you have to try to figure out to what extent you've been, you're just assuming everything right. is the same as the things we've already seen, and you have to have the imagination to ask if there are other things uh, that we just haven't detected that might be quite different that are allowed by the laws of physics, and if so, um, should we have seen them already, and are there techniques for detecting them? Right. But I let you get away with something earlier when you said there's not a complete theory, or words to that effect, of uh, solar system formation, and that there are all sorts of differences and so forth. If I'm sitting somewhere and listening to this, I want to know what, what we know now, what our best guess is as to how the solar system formed and, and what was actually going on, even if I can um, can understand that this is not something which is a general, all-encompassing theory. I, I want to know. Uh, I want to know our best understanding right now. Well, our, our best guess is that uh, stars formed from collapsing gas clouds in the interstellar gas, and that when they formed, uh, because the gas that fell in had angular momentum, they were left with a spinning disk of material around them. That is probably pretty accurate because we can see, although only at low resolution, we can see similar disks around many young stars. Um, the next step would be to argue that as the disk settles down, it starts to cool off, that the star remains hot because of nuclear reactions, but the, uh, the disk material around begins to cool off. And once it cools enough, below 1,000 degrees or so, the heavy elements, things like iron and silicates begin to condense out. It's just not hot enough to keep them in a vapor state. And when they condense out, you get small grains of material that settle into the uh, midplane of the disk. And because they've settled into the midplane, because that's the natural lowest energy state, they, um, they're much denser than the gas, and they're dense enough that they can begin to stick. They collide, and these small grains begin to stick and gradually build up larger and larger bodies. Now, starting with a grain that's maybe a micron across and going up to a planet like the Earth is a pretty big stretch. Uh, it's you know many orders of magnitude in mass, and the details of how you get from the grains to the planets are still pretty obscure. That is, we understand some of these ranges of many orders of magnitude, but there are others where you think, gee, I don't see how it's going to get from, I don't know, millimeter size up to 10 kilometer size. Um, so there are big gaps in our understanding. But roughly speaking, if you ignore those gaps, then you end up that these grains have condensed into solid bodies, maybe um, the size of somewhere between the size of comets, 10 kilometers across to the size of the Earth or the asteroids. Some of them then uh, become massive enough that uh, the gas around them becomes gravitationally unstable, and they uh, 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 accumulate large atmospheres of gas. 
Uh, some of them don't, like the Earth. Uh, and then eventually, um, as the star turns on um, in its young phases, it becomes bright enough and powerful enough to blow the residual gas out. So you're left with no gas disk anymore, just the star and these lumps that are uh, hmm. left over. Hmm. Cool. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about some um, detailed features and aspect of your work and how you actually do that. I wanted to talk a little bit about rings. Um, around some planets. So I have a specific question and a general question. My specific question is, I've heard about these things called shepherding satellites, shepherding moons, and, and how they somehow um, has some effect on, on the formation of these of, of rings, of planetary rings. Um, I don't know anything about that, um, so I'd like you to explain that to me. Um, but I also would like you to talk about the process of discovery that you were involved in. So I think a lot of people, because you were one of the people who, who played a seminal role in the development of, of our understanding there. Um, and there's always this question that people have, which is, uh, what do these guys actually do? Okay, there's the world out there and there's the, they're studying the, the solar system and I understand we have a little bit of data and he's got some equations somewhere and okay, there are Newton's laws and all the rest of that, but how do you connect these things? What do you look for? Um, what triggers your imagination, and then how do you go ahead and, and, and try to verify and, and understand whether what you're doing is actually correct? Uh, well, the, the case of planetary rings is pretty atypical, so it's not a good thing to draw general conclusions from. Um, I started working in the subject because I finished my PhD. I went to Caltech on a postdoc, and I approached one of the professors there, Peter Goldreich, uh, and I said, well, I've been doing all this stuff on galaxies for my thesis. I'd like to do something completely different. Have you anything that you could suggest? And he said, well, you could think about planetary rings. It's a good thing to think about because the NASA's Voyager spacecraft was then on its way from Earth to Saturn. It was expected to arrive, uh, I think, three or four years later. And he said, and this is a good time to think about it because when it goes past Saturn, it's going to get a much better view of the rings uh, than, than, than we had before. Um, so there was an opportunity for direct verification of some, some aspects. There was hopefully an opportunity for, for direct ver verification. But what was more important is he said that there was a puzzle. And of course, if there's a puzzle where things are uh, don't seem to be consistent with what you know, then that's a good sign that there might be some nugget of interesting science there. The particular puzzle was that if uh, you look at Saturn's rings, you see a gap in the middle of the rings called the Cassini gap because it was discovered by Cassini not long after Galileo first discovered the, the, the rings. Um, the reason that's a puzzle is that uh, um, if you have a, a, a ring, and the rings are believed to be made of uh, chunks of ice uh, orbiting uh, uh, Saturn that for some reason never coalesced into a satellite, um, because the chunks of ice are continually colliding with each other, although at very slow speeds, a few millimeters per second, um, they're continually losing energy. And if you have something in orbit that's losing energy, but conserving its angular momentum, it has to spread out to, to manage to do that. And that means that any disk around a planet should always spread out. And so if there's a gap uh, in the rings, the rings should spread out and fill it in. So the first question is, why was there a gap there? Uh, the clue, uh, which had been recognized 
a long time ago is that the gap was near a resonance with the innermost known satellite, Mimas, in the sense that material in the gap uh, orbited Saturn in half the time that Mimas orbits satellite or orbits Saturn. And so the question was, is that a coincidence or is there something in the gravitational effect of Mimas that clears out a gap around a resonance like this? Um, so that was the puzzle. Uh, we worked on it for an extended period and eventually came up with what we thought was a reasonable theory that uh, could explain what was happening. And basically what was happening is that uh, Mimas was uh, transferring angular momentum to the resonant ring particles and uh, pushing them out. And you could roughly explain the size and other properties of the gap uh, with, with that model. Um, the relation to Shepard satellites is that a couple of years later, uh, before the Voyager spacecraft got to Saturn, uh, a group of other researchers were observing an occultation of a star by Uranus. So every now and then one of the planets in its orbit passes in front of a star. And if you watch the star's light get blocked out by the planet, you can measure properties of the planet's atmosphere that are not accessible in any other way. Uh, and these guys were, uh, the trouble was that the occultation was only visible somewhere in the South Pacific. And so they used a NASA aircraft with a telescope in it to fly along the correct track in the South Pacific to monitor the occultation. And what they discovered when they did that is that about a few minutes before the star was scheduled to go behind the planet, uh, the light from the star disappeared for a few seconds, came back up, went along, disappeared for a couple of seconds, came back up, disappeared again. Now you, you, you can imagine how they felt when they saw their signal disappear the first time, uh, because this is an event that only repeats once every few years. They were on this expensive uh, sure. uh, mission, and they thought something had failed. Um, but they were still, and for, actually there was a transcript they were recording everything, so you can hear what they said when this first happened. It's it's pretty amusing, but anyway. So that how, how long did it last? A uh, few seconds. Okay. So they were greatly reassured when it came right. back. Then it went out again, and they thought maybe there was a short intermittent short. Right, right, sure. Um, but then what they noticed is they got the occultation. Then the star came out. They saw the the atmosphere on the way out. And then exactly the same pattern of dips occurred on the way out. And mm. once that happens it's pretty clear that it's a real signal and that it's some sort of ring structure around uh, Uranus. The thing that was a real problem was that uh, these rings were typically a few, only a few kilometers across. And if the problem of spreading that I mentioned in Saturn's rings is bad, in the rings of Uranus, it's extremely bad. There's just no way that a ring that's that narrow shouldn't spread out and become diffuse. Uh, in much less than the age of Saturn. And what was particularly bad is that the rings had very sharp edges, which hmm. uh, in any case, at that once that observation came about, uh, we realized that um, if you just took the mechanism that we'd applied to Saturn and had a much smaller satellite much closer in, it could uh, uh, carry out this process of angular momentum transfer and uh, confine uh, a ring to a narrow uh, region. 
and that came to be called uh, shepherding because the, the satellite is like a sheepdog going around a flock of sheep barking at it gravitationally to keep it uh, to keep it all in line. Right. Why was this so unusual? Was it because of the the the? Because originally, when you responded to me, you said, "Well, these were unusual circumstances." Was it because of the Voyager probe and because of the the the, the experimental yeah. confirmation by this group? Because in terms of your recognizing that there's a problem or your supervisor or you and your supervisor recognizing, or former supervisor recognizing that there's a problem um, and, and then trying to think of a mechanism that might be able to explain that problem and then looking for ways of actually verifying whether that's true or not. Th those all seem to be fairly, uh, fairly consistent yeah, it was, it ways was of approach. unusual both because of the serendipitous discovery of rings at, at, at Uranus, but then because uh, in 1980, the first Voyager spacecraft did actually go past Saturn. Right. And in the course of less than a week, uh, we learned more about Saturn and the ring system by orders of magnitude than we known for learned in the last 300 years. So the, the whole uh, understanding of the ring system just improved so dramatically in a very short time, in the, basically in the space of a week, uh, that uh, we got direct verification of a number of features that we had predicted that was irrefutable, extremely clean, and uh, again, that's simply not the typical experience in astrophysics where right. you gradually develop a consensus on what nature is telling you through many false starts and over many years. It was a good choice of a problem. Uh, it was a good choice of a problem, although he did actually warn me that you know it was a, a difficult problem and it wasn't at all obvious that it wasn't a dead end. But mm. at that point, I was uh, young and reckless, and uh, it sounded like a really neat problem, so I was happy to try it. And, and two questions as a follow-up. So you started saying that uh, you were tired of this galactic stuff and you wanted something uh, different. Um, so there, is, this hap is this a characteristic feature of you that you think, uh, well, I've been doing this for a while, I'd like to do that? Or are you by, by nature somebody who's looking at different types of problems to be solving? Well, I think not as much as some of my colleagues. I know colleagues who have worked on a typical subject area for five years or 10 years and then just dropped it completely and moved into something completely different. Uh, doing that is a challenge because you have a set of tools and intuitions that you've developed in one area that won't necessarily carry over to, uh, to another area. And uh, so it's a challenge. It means there's a, a fallow period where you can't uh, produce much. Sure, you have uh, to get up to speed. Aren't you? you have to get up to speed. It's also not something I'd say that's really encouraged by the current granting system, which uh, where once you get started, you really have to keep uh, funds flowing to support your graduate students or postdocs and it's harder much harder to get a grant in a subject area where you don't have a track record than to continue doing things similar to what you you've done be before yeah. you mentioned when you were talking about Saturn's rings um, that well we're not exactly sure how these rings came to be to begin with so I want to explore that a little bit what's our best guess as to why some planets actually do have rings and and why some don't uh, that is a very hard question. Um, we don't really have any good idea. If you look at all the, so none of the 
inner planets have rings. Earth doesn't have them, Mars doesn't have them, nor Venus, nor Mercury. All of the outer planets have rings of some kind, but um, the ones around Saturn are far more spectacular, far more massive, far more luminous than uh, the rings around any of the other giant planets. Why Saturn and not the other ones, uh, we don't know. Mm. Uh, why Saturn, we don't know. Uh, uh, there are various theories, for example, that a satellite came inside, uh, came too close to Saturn, was tidally disrupted and settled down to, to, to form a ring. Uh, there are theories that it was primordial, uh, that is, that it formed at the same time as Saturn. Um, we really don't know. The, there's also disturbing or worrying evidence that the rings are much younger than Saturn. That is oh, really? maybe a few percent of the age of Saturn. And is that because in their current, their current configuration is unusual or uh, we don't know? How do, how do we know that, by the way? How do we know that the, that the rings are much younger, parts of the rings are much younger than Saturn? Um, from theoretical arguments, you can estimate how long the current configuration uh, should last. We can calculate, because this mechanism for forming gaps involves transfer of angular momentum, uh, the Shepard satellite is transferring angular momentum to the ring, and so we can calculate the rate at which that's occurring. We know the mass of the satellite, and so we know how fast it should be receding from the ring. And the time scales for that recession, if we extrapolate them backwards, put the satellite in the ring uh, at times that are only a few percent of the age of uh, Saturn. Uh, that may be misleading. For instance, it could be that the generic process for the ring is that uh, angular momentum is transferred out, it transferred from the ring to the satellite. As the ring particles get further and further out, they become more gravitationally unstable and then they condense into a new satellite, and then that gets pushed out. Uh, but uh, nobody has been able to make that theory work quantitatively yet. And again, with only one example, it's a little hard to know uh, uh, what's an accident and what you're really trying to match. The, the optimistic way to think about it is that uh, you know Saturn's ring is a very unusual and rare occurrence, and in the in the Michelin Green Guide to the Galaxy, you know that's the only ring that we, reason that we've got three stars. Do you, and and do you have uh, granted that you're a very careful scientist, and I I know you don't like to um, uh, to indulge in all sorts of speculations, at least without many caveats saying that you're indulging in all sorts of speculations. But I'm going to ask you to indulge in a speculation anyway. Do you have any intuition as to uh, as to what might have uh, led Saturn to be as different as it is? Do you have any pet theory or pet ideas or, or something that you would not uh, wish to, to publicize without a sufficient amount of, uh, of data to back it no. up or theory? <laughs> no, I don't. Uh, again, it's very hard when you've only got one example. Yeah. And there's nothing obvious about Saturn that's so different from, uh, from the other giant planets. So my personal guess is that it's some sort of unusual and rare event that could have happened to any of the giant planets, but Saturn's the only one that it happened to. But as to the nature of that event or how lucky we are to have a ring system like Saturn's, uh, I have no idea. And um, do we have any ability or can you foresee any ability in, in the longer term to be able to 
get a sense of some ring structure of, of exoplanets at all? Oh, that, that's possible, and certainly people have thought about that. Uh, the typical problem is that the exoplanets we can see best are the ones that are transiting. Uh, the ones that are transiting we can only see because they pass in front of the star. They only pass in the star if their orbit is pretty much edge-on to us. And uh, in the likely case where the planet's uh, equator is aligned with its orbit, any rings would be edge-on to us, in which case we can't see them. Right. So uh, I think it's quite possible that many of the planets we've seen have beautiful ring systems, but they're all edge-on and we can't see any of them. And is there any technological or higher level diagnostic technique that we might be able to imagine in the future where we could somehow assess these? Um, you could imagine that uh, if you could get uh, uh, separate the light from the planet from the light from the star, uh, something like Saturn would appear uh, bigger than it should because you're seeing the light from, right. the, from right. the ring system. Uh, so the contribution of the ring system would, would, would be part right. of the factor. Right. Okay. Sorry, I interrupted. No, no. So, so it, it would appear bigger. The spectrum of the material in the rings, because it's solid ice, would look different from the spectrum of the gas uh, uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the planetary atmosphere. Uh, so maybe in principle. The most interesting recent ring observation, which was also a surprise, is that there's an asteroid orbiting in the outer solar system, which also occulted a star uh, a couple of years ago, was visible from South America, and it also has a pair of rings around it. Uh, oh, really? So somehow the asteroid, like Uranus, was able to form narrow rings, and again, we have no idea why that is. How, how big is this asteroid? Uh, it's maybe uh, one or 200 kilometers across. So it's a very different size system from really that's yeah, kind of from 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 Saturn or Uranus. That's a great field. You guys don't know anything. I mean, there's stuff coming. Out uh, you do get surprises occasionally. Yes. <laughs> um, I'd like to talk a little bit about comets and and their relation to asteroids and asteroid belts and so forth. Um, you've also done seminal work in that area. Um, tell me what we know about comets, where they come from. As, as well as your particular uh, experience in, in participating in, in this discovery? Uh, well, everybody knows what a comet is, roughly speaking. It's this beautiful thing that has a nice long tail in the sky. Uh, the, the way to think about them from a theoretical point of view is that most likely when I described this uh, model of the formation of planets starting from dust grains and accumulating right. all the way up to planets, uh, one of the intermediate stages is bodies a few kilometers or tens of kilometers or hundreds of kilometers across. Some of those bodies will be accumulated into uh, planets, but not all of them, uh, because the process isn't all that efficient. So the right way to think of an intermediate stage of formation of the solar system or other planetary systems is as a series, a small number of planets with huge numbers of small bodies left over in between, uh, then those small bodies are subject to the gravitational influence of the planets. Um, that leads their orbits to evolve chaotically. And in some cases, those bodies will be uh, ejected onto very eccentric 
orbits going far outside the planetary system. Normally you'd say those orbits couldn't survive because every time they come back again, they get another kick from the planet and eventually it'll kick them into escape energy and they'll be lost to interstellar space. Uh, but uh, in the case of the solar system with our existing configuration of giant planets, um, as the orbits get large enough, um, external influences, um, gravitational kicks from passing stars, the gravitational field of the overall galaxy, um, begin to change the orbits so that they no longer come within the planetary system. Once they don't come close to the giant planets, they don't get any gravitational kicks from the giant planets, and they're kind of, their orbits are kind of frozen in place. They can stay frozen in place for billions of years, and then some other passing star or some other effect of the galactic uh, gravitational field will cause them to come back into the planetary system and then they'll appear more or less out of nowhere um, and uh, come close to the sun. They've got a mix of uh, ice and frozen ice, rock, and as they get close enough to the sun, the ice starts to sublimate and that's what creates the tail. Mm. Uh, so there's a steady flow of new comets that we get from these random effects that we can't really calculate. Once the comet starts losing material from, from the uh, radiate from heating from the sun, it typically will last a few tens or hundreds of orbits and then uh, disintegrate or become inactive, so they're very hard to see. Um, and then that's the end of the comet. What is, what is inactive? When you say they become inactive, what is that? Once all the gas is, once all the frozen ice is uh, sublimated and the other gases are sublimated, you presumably still have some matrix of rock that's left, but because it's uh, uh, because it doesn't produce a tail anymore, you can't see it's it. very much harder to see than it, it is when when material is being lost from it. Okay, what I'm interested in is 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 trying to chart out how you figure this stuff out. How do you actually sit down and develop, based upon what we understand now, a prediction that these things are going to be coming from this particular uh, place and they're going to be interacting in this way as opposed to that way? Talk me through a little bit your your process of discovery with respect to the Cowper belt and so forth and all of that. Well, let me, um, I think the best example of this is not my process of discovery, but a somewhat earlier process. Sure. Uh, the origin of comets was a mystery for a long time. Uh, and the seminal work on this was done by the Dutch astronomer Jan Oort in 1950. Uh, and the Many people, it's possible to make very accurate measurements of the orbits of comets. Uh, and people looked at these orbits and they seemed to come from all over the place. Uh, and with no clear signal, no clear way to interpret where they were coming from. And Wirt recognized that since the comets were coming from a long way away, the important thing was not the orbit that we, they had when we saw them, but the orbit that they had before they entered the planetary system, which is different because of the gravitational uh, kicks induced by Jupiter and Saturn. And so uh, he, he and his collaborators followed the orbits back in time uh, until before they had entered the planetary system. And this was not easy, of course, because there were no digital computers back then, but right. they had techniques for, for doing that. They followed the orbits back, and when they did that, they discovered that all of the orbits, as measured from outside the solar system, 
came from a distance from uh, the sun of about 20 to 50,000 times the distance of the Earth from the sun. Now, that's a very long way away. The comets couldn't possibly have formed there because you know, coalescence of grains to make solid bodies only occurs in high-density regions uh, out there. Even if there was a disk or other material left over from the formation of the star, it would be far too low density to produce anything. Uh, so the comets had to have come from within the planetary system and somehow gotten kicked out to that volume, which is now called the Oort cloud. Once you had that clue, the step to say that the kicks must have come from the giant planets is not really such a sure. such a hard hard had to come to from make. somewhere. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, the particular work I was doing on what's now called the Kuiper Belt um, arose because we were trying to do similar things, given Oort's uh, model and given that computers were constantly improving. It was a fairly straightforward idea to say, well, let's take a bunch of comets in the Oort cloud, let them come in, follow them as their orbits evolve due to the influence of the planets, and see if the distribution of orbits looks like what, what you see. This is not rocket science, as they say. Um, but when we did that, we found that there was a mismatch. The, planet, the comets that we produced from the Oort cloud were roughly speaking spherically distributed uh, and a large fraction of the comets that we see have orbits that are very close to the same plane as the planetary system. And if you think about it, it's very hard to concentrate the orbits that are initially spherical down to the plane. So again, you didn't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that there had to be some source for these other comets that wasn't the Oort cloud and was probably directly associated with the planetary system because it was flat with the same orientation as the planetary system. Once you think about that, the only logical way to do this is to have a belt of cometary material outside the planets far enough away that uh, uh, it wouldn't have been detected, but close enough so that uh, uh, the gravitational kicks from the planets could gradually cause comets to uh, diffuse out of that belt into the inner part of the planetary system. Right, and and in the at least in the popular consciousness, my understanding is that Pluto is one of these guys that's in that region. Right? Is that or is that? Um, is that not well, right? of course you can. Paul Pluto, whatever you want. To well, that, that, but, that's really but, where I'm, where I'm, 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 I'm getting well, in terms of the, the resonance that people might have. So, so, so there are lots of comets in the Kuiper Belt that have orbits just like Pluto's, composition just like Pluto's, all the other properties just like Pluto's. But the only difference being that Pluto is bigger than most, but not all of them, and so you can call Pluto a planet that makes a lot more sense from, a, from any standpoint to think of it as one of the largest members of this belt of objects. But there are some that are, uh, that are just as large as, as, as Pluto in that, in that belt? There, there are some that are larger than Pluto. It's a little hard to be sure because they're more distant and it's harder to resolve the size, but the best evidence is that Pluto is one of the largest members but there are a handful that have been discovered already that are uh, bigger than Pluto. 
So that's the primary motivation for this downgrading of Pluto that happened, whatever it was, 10 years ago or, or whenever it happened. Uh, that's partly true. Um, the obvious problem, which the people who do this sort of thing were worried about, is that uh, if something's bigger than Pluto, you can't really call Pluto a planet. And not and them. Not call something else a planet. And then if you discover more of them, you know, uh, I sort of think of it uh, slightly in a slightly politically incorrect way as like immigration. You know, you have uh, this somebody comes, he's not really your culture, he doesn't look like you, he doesn't kind of fit in, but you're generous and you say, okay, we'll call you a planet. Then you discover he's got a bunch of relatives and they want to be called planets too. So and where do you, you draw the line? Right, where do you draw the line? Was it frustrating to you at all? Because maybe I just wasn't paying attention, but the way that the whole Pluto thing was framed for me was, well, it's somewhat arbitrary. There's some bigger objects, there's not some bigger objects. And, and, and in fact, you didn't even have, uh, have that level of communication. It was just these astronomers, one day they thought Pluto was a planet, the next day it somehow didn't measure up, it wasn't good enough. Um, whereas it's, it, it, it seems like this would have been a good opportunity to um, so I, I keep calling this thing the Cowper Belt because my wife is Dutch, you see, so I'm trying to fake a, a, a Dutch accent as best I can. Um, but it, it seems like it would have been a great opportunity to really uh, explore why this has happened and, and tie it into our understanding of, uh, of, of this development in astrophysics and astronomy. Did that actually happen or, or, or did, that, did that not happen? Was it as I recollect? Uh, I, I think you're correct. Um, first, that... Uh, it is what you would call a teachable moment. That is, any time your conventional definitions uh, fail, any time you've got something that doesn't seem to fit into your conventional definitions, you've learned something very important. And so breakdowns of conventional definitions in science are opportunities rather than problems. Uh, I think that was lost in the uh, uh, media circus about Pluto. I remember there was a New York Times headline, which said, New York's a tough town if you're a planet. <laughs> uh, um, because a lot of the initial impetus for the change came from the opening of the Hayden Planetarium, where Pluto was not counted as a planet. Uh, so, yeah, I thought it, it played out a lot less well than it, uh, than it could have. Uh, I think the attitude of my attitude and the attitude of most of my colleagues was, you, know, you can call it anything you want. The important thing are the, is the properties. But it would have been nice if the uh, if the media attention attached to this had um, focused more on the positive view that uh, you've learned something when your old definitions break down. Yeah. Two um, two final questions before we leave the planetary realm, as it were, planetary scale realm. Um, my first one is, maybe this is obvious, but um, but it's not obvious to me, so I'll ask it. So you've got all these big gas giant guys that are out there, um, and um, the, at least the way it's, the way I remember, you've, you've got your normal, that is to say, your, your, your non-gas giant terrestrial planets that go out to Mars, and then all of a sudden you get these big gas giant guys that have rings. So, is that just a coincidence, or why, why is that? Could we imagine a situation where we have solar systems that are formed with gas giants that are, that are closer to, 
uh, in keeping with what you were saying before, we could be alternating these these guys. Of course, we have asteroids of rock that are way out there, much further. I mean, it, it seems like an odd structure to have a whole bunch of gas giants that are lined up close to the end, or is there some theme there? Is there some reason for that? Um, no, I agree. So to answer one of your questions, certainly it's possible to have gas giants uh, much closer. Um, the existing studies have found gas giants with orbital periods as short as a few days around the host star. So hundreds of times closer to the host star than uh, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune is. Uh, why our system is different or unusual, first of all, we don't know. As I said, we could only barely begin to detect uh, our solar system if we were looking with current technology from outside the, the, the sun. So you said we find planets around you know 10 or 20 percent of uh, stars depending on how you define it it could be that the other 80 to 90 percent look just like the solar system so in that sense we wouldn't be unusual at all it could be that nothing looks like the solar system and we're incredibly unusual uh, i don't think that's likely because we although we can just barely see jupiter we can see planetary systems with planets like jupiter somewhat closer and there seem to be plenty of those um, why we have this particular configuration, one possible explanation is that it's very hard to form a Jupiter very close to the host star. So most likely the ones that we see close to the host star formed at large radii and then migrated inwards due to interactions with other planets, interactions with the star, interactions with the protoplanetary disk. We don't know which of those is right. But if a Jupiter did migrate inward, as you can imagine, it would be pretty unhealthy for any terrestrial planets like Earth and Mars that were in its way. Yeah. So it's possible that uh, only a small fraction of planetary systems avoid migration of Jupiter inwards, but that those are the ones that maybe are most likely to have life because uh, the planets in the habitable zone are likely to have been destroyed or collided with Jupiter uh, if it migrated inwards. I wanted to ask a little bit about the stability of the solar system. Um, so if I, um, if I know nothing about um, this whatsoever, and I look at the situation, um, and I, I haven't thought about the fact that we, I know nothing about our particular solar system, but I just look at this as objectively as possible, and I think, well, what would even make these things stable anyway? I could imagine if I have a whole bunch of bodies in motion, I have an n-body problem that, it, that it, it would never necessarily coalesce to any particular stable form that our solar system seems to have. Um, why is our solar system stable writ large? Uh, well, that's a good question and a very old one. Uh, Newton certainly thought about it. Uh, Newton was able to understand in principle that he could calculate the behavior of all the planets in the solar system based on his law of gravity and his law of motion. But the only system he was able to solve exactly was a simplified version in which there was just the sun and one planet, the two-body problem. Um, in the case of the n-body problem, he was aware that this was determined by his equations, but he couldn't solve them. Um, and then there are basically two options. One is to say, as you uh, indicated, that uh, uh, the 
gravitational effects of all the planets on one another will gradually build up irregularities in the orbit's eccentricities or inclinations until eventually the planets collide or one of them falls into the sun or it gets ejected into interstellar space. The other possibility is that the um, uh, gravitational influence of one planet on another is periodic. So they induce periodic oscillations in the uh, orbits, but the oscillations never grow. And in the state of un our understanding of physics at the time of Newton, um, you didn't know which of those was going to be correct. Newton's view was actually quite different. As you know, Newton had rather complicated theological views, and he was either a deist or a theist. I can never remember which one is correct, but he, it, it was whichever one believed that God not only created the universe, but played a role in actively intervening in the universe to make it do whatever he wanted. And his view was that God had a surface contract uh, with the solar system, and the motions would gradually get more and more irregular, and then God could step in and, fix and it. do a tune-up and, yeah. and, and fix it. Um, on the other hand, Leibniz, who was a contemporary of Newton's and had controversies with Newton about other issues, like the invention of calculus, uh, was either a deist or a theist, whichever the opposite one to, to Newton is. And he famous, so he believed the system was stable, and he famously said that, well, you know, Professor Newton's views are very strange. He believes that um, God could make a watch, if God made a watch, he wouldn't have the foresight to make it good enough so he wouldn't have to wind it from time to time. Um, we've moved beyond that. Um, this has been a problem which has attracted the attention of a lot of very strong mathematicians and physicists um, who have proved lots of theorems. It, it kind of gave rise to the whole modern field of nonlinear dynamics. And although we understand things qualitatively much better than we used to, um, the actual question of whether the system is stable, uh, you can only decide by running a numerical calculation. Uh, with modern computers, you can do that. It Follow the solar system for its lifetime takes a few weeks on your laptop. Um, and what you find when you do that is that, um, first of all, the system is chaotic in a technical sense that if you change the initial conditions slightly, uh, the two solar systems will diverge exponentially. That is, it's very sensitive to the initial conditions. So, for example, uh, the fact that you uh, came here for this interview changes changed the tidal field in your mass on Jupiter enough so that in five billion years when or seven billion years when the sun turns into a red giant, uh, Jupiter will be the position of Jupiter will be uncertain by what's what phase in the orbit it'll be. Right. So it's, it's this butterfly effect idea. Right, it's the butterfly effect. Uh, so that's certainly there. On the other hand, when you do the numerical calculations, in about 99% of the solar systems that you try that are consistent with the errors in the known initial conditions and parameters, everything is fine until the sun turns into a red giant and incinerates Venus and Mercury and maybe incinerates the Earth. And then kind of there's not much point in trying to follow it past then. 
in the other 1%, um, Mercury's orbit gets sufficiently irregular that it collides with Venus or collides with the Earth or falls into the Sun. So the empirical answer seems to be that there's a 99% chance that the system is stable. And, and there's no... So I know very little about these nonlinear dynamical systems, but there, there's no way of even having a suggestion. 99% is a pretty strong, that's, mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a pretty big number. Um, so I'm thinking there might be some structure somewhere that would enable us to see that if we didn't actually grind through the, the calculations. I mean, there, there are two ways of, of, of addressing that, right? One is to say there's no structure in principle, and the other is to say, well, we're just, we just don't know it yet, and right now with our present understanding, we have to actually grind something through. But 99% seems suggestive of something that would indicate a deeper level of structure to be able to predict that. Do you see where I'm... Um, you're it's a good question. You're correct that the only way we can tell right now is to grind through the calculations. Um, the reason for that, the reason to be pessimistic about finding a simple structure or a formula that would enable you to predict this without doing all the work, um, is that that result seems to be quite sensitive to um, the detailed configurations. People have tried experiments where they I don't know, do it with general relativity or without general relativity, or they change the masses of one of the planets by 10%, and the results can change dramatically. So there may be a structure, but if so, it's something that's very sensitive to the details, the detailed configuration of the solar system. Um, the other thing to bear in mind is that <clears throat> we're talking about the system being stable when you calculate its future behavior. That's no guarantee that it was stable in the past. Mm. And uh, one natural way to think about it, for which we have no direct evidence, is that uh, when the system was maybe 10% of its current age, it had more planets. And they had shorter lifetimes, so they collided, already right. collided with the sun or one of the other planets or got ejected, in which case we have no sign that that happened. So this is like an evolutionary uh, filter to some extent, um, right? We're, we're here because we had, it's almost like an anthropic principle thing. We're here because the initial conditions were such, we're, we're a subset, we're in this stable situation because we're a subset of people with the, a subset of circumstances of the initial condition that enabled us to get to that place. I'd, I'd prefer to think of it not so much as anthropic as what some physicists called self-organized criticality, where you have a system it's stable on, say, a 100 million year time scale. It readjusts itself by getting rid of some planets, so it's stable on a billion year time scale. Readjusts itself again by getting rid of one or two more, so it's stable on a 10 billion year time scale. And that's as far as we've gone. So if the sun didn't turn into a red giant, presumably what would happen is you'd get rid of Mercury in 20 or 30 billion years. You'd have a more stable system if you went for a thousand billion years, you might get rid of something else, that it's just gradually uh, and extremely slowly settling down to a more and more stable state until eventually only one planet's left. So let's turn to galaxies now, if I may, unless there's anything you'd like to... No, that's fine. Uh, okay. Um, so let's start with the basic question. I understand galaxies come in a few different flavors. Uh, um, they're galaxies that look like disks and galaxies that look like spirals and so forth. So, um, and then there's, there's another major flavor, isn't there? There's, 
disks and spirals. But, uh, disks, spirals, and elliptical galaxies. Right, elliptical galaxies. So why is that? Um, why, are the, why does that? First of all, is that right? Um, maybe that's the you know, 30 year old version or whatever it is. And second of all, why is that? Um, so it is correct. Uh, roughly speaking, if you look at galaxies, there are two flavors. There's galaxies that appear to be like a spherical or elliptical or ellipsoidal ball of billions of stars. And they're structures that are basically held together by self, the self-gravity of this huge assembly of stars. And each star is orbiting in the combined gravity of all the other ones. Um, there are also disk galaxies, some with spirals, some without, in which uh, in addition to, in, or instead of the, the spheroidal structure, there's a more or less flat disk that contains uh, stars, gas, uh, ionized gas, and a variety of uh, other components. Um, why there's a difference between them, we don't know. Uh, but one hypothesis is that if you have two spiral galaxies um, that come close enough together, the two will merge. The merging process will be quite violent. It will churn up the stars so that the flat disks will get churned up into a roughly ellipsoidal structure. The gas will lose its angular momentum because of the irregularly, violently varying gravitational field fall into the center. There will be a burst of star formation um, and the uh, winds and supernovae from the new stars will blow out all the remaining gas and then those stars will settle down to be part of the uh, elliptical galaxy. That, that model probably has a great deal of truth in it. It doesn't necessarily explain everything, but it gives a rough idea of why there might be two flavors. And, and this model seems to imply that these collisions between galaxies happen with some regularity, right? Is that... Um, yeah, so that, that is also a good question. It, it's not at all obvious that that should happen. And in the early studies of galaxies where people thought of these as like particles in a gas randomly moving around through the universe, the collision rate was extremely low. Right. Uh, the reason that's not true is that uh, our modern picture is that the galaxy is basically gravitationally unstable. That is that the uh, velocities of these uh, galaxies relative to the overall cosmic expansion are quite low, that that's how the galaxies originally grew, and that galaxies are growing by a kind of hierarchical merging process. You make a small structure with a few stars. There's another structure over here. They're gravitationally attracted, and so they just fall together and eventually merge, and they're gravitationally attracted to some other structure over here, they fall together and then merge. So rather than being a, a rare event, this sort of merger is the basic building block in making uh, the big galaxies. galaxies. So let's go all the way back in time. Let's, 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 let's do a little bit of cosmology and let's go back um, and, and, and try to give me a sense of how these galaxies formed to, to, to begin with. Well, in the standard Big Bang cosmology, which in many or most respects is now extremely well verified by by, uh, by the data, um, everything starts off very hot. Um, as the universe expands, the material cools. Um, the first critical step is the place where the, uh, <clears throat> the protons and the electrons, which comprise most of the material in the, in, the, uh, in the universe, sorry, most of the baryonic material in the universe, 
uh, recombine to form neutral hydrogen atoms. At that point, the material, the, the hydrogen is decoupled from the gas of radiation, and so it can start to condense. Uh, so you have an initially homogeneous universe full of this relatively cold hydrogen, and you start to form uh, gas clumps. Um, the collapse is enhanced by the fact that there's also a background of dark matter, which contains most of the mass. So the dark matter and the gas <clears throat> collapses together into small lumps. Uh, the gas can cool, and so the gas shrinks much more than the dark matter material. And then uh, these lumps can start merging together. And as the universe continues to evolve, larger and larger lumps uh, coalesce together. Um, and the gas in the centers of these lumps eventually form stars, and those are the galaxies. But the star formation typically occurs long after the, the material, the dark matter and the gaseous material has already uh, coalesced as a, as a separate structure. Tell me a little bit more about that star formation process and how it actually works, our, our best guess, our best understanding of that. Um, again, that's one issue where we don't understand things very well. If you look at all the systems that we know of, you know, in astronomy, stars, planets, galaxies, the universe, paradoxically, the one we think we understand the best is the universe because it's so hot that the physics is a lot cleaner. Um, the star formation process, we believe, is occurring because uh, gas is cooling. As it cools, it loses energy. As it loses energy, it can't support itself against its own gravity. And so the material begins to condense. Um, the details of how that works, uh, we can only really measure in the vicinity of the sun. So we have no idea whether it's the same early in the history of the universe. But roughly speaking, you see clouds you see very dense structures called cores within the clouds. And we see in some of these cores new stars peeking out through the gas and uh, small particles around them. So that's a rough view of how the star formation occurs. It's basically because in contrast to the dark matter, the ordinary matter like hydrogen can cool. And as it cools, it um, becomes denser and denser under its own self-gravity. Okay. I wanted to talk about uh, all sorts of ways that galactic astronomy can tie in nowadays with cosmology and issues in cosmology. Um, but you've mentioned dark matter on several occasions. And um, if I'm listening to this, I'm hearing Professor Tremaine talk about dark matter as if it's there and, and uh, this is, it's a contributing factor and, and it seems like it's just as real as everything else. Um, uh, Tell me why uh, you're confident, or at least the, the people who are invoking the models that you are describing have this degree of confidence in it. Uh, well, uh, it's certainly true that not all of my colleagues are totally confident that dark matter exists. And uh, although there's a huge amount of indirect evidence for it, uh, there's no direct evidence that is uh, we don't know what it is. And until we know what it is, I don't think anyone will really be 100% confident that it exists. Uh, but the indirect evidence is very strong. Uh, part of the evidence is that we can measure the distribution of mass in galaxies, and it simply doesn't correspond to the distribution of the mass that we can see. 
we know what the masses of stars are, we can make a pretty good estimate of the total contribution of the mass uh, due to stars in the galaxy. And if we look at uh, orbits of satellite galaxies, if we look at uh, uh, the rotation speed of hydrogen gas in the galaxy, if we make direct measurements by looking at distortion of light from background galaxies by the gravitational field of the galaxies, all of those give an extremely consistent picture which says that there's up to a factor of 10 to 30 more mass in the galaxy than you can ascribe to the stars um, and to the gas. You can hide that in other forms. You can hide it in black holes. You could hide it in bricks. You could hide it in uh, lots of different uh, forms. But um, first of all, almost all of those forms have been ruled out by indirect arguments. Second, there's cosmological evidence from the primordial distributions of heavy elements formed early in the universe that the density of anything that can contribute to synthesis of heavy elements is much lower than the mass that we see in galaxies. Um, so those are two um, direct or indirect arguments for dark matter. The third is that you recall I said that early in the history of the universe, uh, the hydrogen was ionized. That means it was in individual protons and electrons. Those are strongly coupled to the radiation. And that means that any initial fluctuations in the density distribution of the universe would be homogenized by a process called silk damping after Joe Silk, which is basically that the coupled radiation and hydrogen fluid um, is dissipative and it tends to get smoothed out. The dark matter is not coupled to the, to the radiation. That's why it's dark. Its uh, fluctuations in density wouldn't be smoothed out. So unless there's dark matter, by the time the hydrogen became neutral, it would be so smooth that you wouldn't form any galaxies in the time we have available. So there's a set of several different lines of argument that um, all are solved very easily by postulating the existence of dark matter, and each one of which is very hard to uh, solve without that. Um, having said that, many searches have gone on for dark matter in many different forms. The most popular view now is that it's some new elementary particle that um, is not part of the standard model of particle physics and that uh, we hope to detect by very sensitive uh, uh, observations. But it's also true that people have been looking for this for many years. The current limits on the cross-section, on the interaction strength of that particle have gone down by many orders of magnitude, and they still haven't found it. So obviously it's correct to keep looking, but at some point we may have to say if we can't find it, um, what other alternatives are there? Do you have any other alternatives in mind right now? Do you have any Anything um, you're willing to speculate on? Well, some people have tried to speculate that there's some failure in Einstein's theory of general relativity at the largest scales. Um, I, I'd say what we've learned from that is that first, it's very difficult to tinker with the theory of relativity, as as you've probably discovered too. Um, it, it, it really is a kind of unique theory, and it's very hard to add any bells and whistles to it that don't destroy either some fundamental con 
they create a fundamental inconsistency in the theory or they're ruled out by the extremely accurate tests we have that show that general relativity is correct on the scale of the solar system. So a possibility is to modify, modify gravity, uh, but I think that's not very attractive. The other possibility is that we simply haven't been imaginative enough in thinking about alternative elementary particles. Uh, the third is that we have, but we don't really know the interaction strengths, and if we keep going for another order of magnitude or two, we'll find it. I want to talk about black holes, um, and specifically um, these supermassive black holes that are thought to be at the center of galaxies now. So again, I'm imagining that I'm somebody who may not uh, have had a particular background in, in physics or science, um, but I know a little bit about the history of science, and I know that um, black holes were things that were um, conjectured as, I mean, th there's a fairly long history of black holes, even in the Newtonian, uh, the Newtonian analog of it. But, but basically this idea that people had imagined black holes, they were considered to be speculative objects um, uh, as a result of, uh, of, of the theory of general relativity. Um, there was, uh, for decades, there was some uh, real debate as to whether there were any actual black holes that were out there, then they started to find candidates and they started to have greater confidence that, that such things actually existed. Um, and now we move a few decades into the future and all of a sudden, not only are black holes everywhere, but there are these huge supermassive black holes in the, in the center of, uh, uh, or thought to be uh, at, the, at the center of many galaxies, if not, I don't know, you'll tell me. But um, uh, but so, so, so why shouldn't I be skeptical, I guess, is what I'm saying. All oh, these guys, you know, first they can't find any, they don't think any exist, and now all of a sudden there are, there are super duper, you know, 100 million or 100 zillion solar mass black holes that are in the middle of the galaxy. I don't know what to believe. Why, why are these guys so confident? Well, of course, you should be skeptical. <laughs> uh, uh, and, you know, having an, an educated public that's skeptical about claims that scientists make is, uh, is very important. So let me, let me make a couple of points. First, um, although black holes do have a long history um, and they're an, an inevitable prediction of Einstein's theory of relativity, uh, they were only really understood 50 years after the theory uh, was put forward. And in fact, I'm told that Einstein never really believed that they exist. Uh, formally, their uh, uh, singularity in space-time, which it turns out is always surrounded by an event horizon, uh, which is a one-way membrane so that things can go into the event horizon but can't come out. Um, the, and all of those properties, I think, were pretty well understood 30 or 40 years ago. As you say, they were discovered before there was very strong evidence for astrophysical black holes. But I think it was clear from the start that you can't easily or even with great difficulty make a black hole in the laboratory. And so if you're going to study the properties of black holes and the properties of Einstein's theory and strong gravitational fields, you have to look to astrophysics and see if you can find, if nature has been kind enough to provide some black holes that you can measure. Um, the second thing I'd say is that the situation is somewhat analogous to what you described for dark matter. Um, Nobody has seen a black hole. There's no direct evidence for a black hole. Uh, it's not surprising because they're 
black, and they're also very small. Um, but the evidence that black holes do exist is so strong that uh, I think almost all physicists and astrophysicists believe that they do exist and that we can point to locations where they're found. Um, the, as you said, there's two flavors. There's stellar mass black holes created uh, in the collapse of massive stars, but there's also what I think is in a bad abuse of the English language are called supermassive uh, black holes, um, which are found in the centers of galaxies. Um, the arguments for those basically arose from the discovery of quasars. So let me say a little bit about Please. quasars. Uh, if you look at um, uh, if you look at galaxies, most of the light in most galaxies comes from stars, not that different from the sun. Uh, but in a small fraction of galaxies, there's a point-like source of light exactly at the center of the galaxy. You can tell from the spectrum of that light that it's coming from hot gas, but not from stars. And the origin of that light was a mystery for many decades. Um, the, the most extreme examples of that are quasars. Um, they're called quasars because it's a contraction of quasi-stellar uh, quasi source. They're called quasi-stellar because they were found in galaxies, but they, well, sorry, they were originally found um, just as things that looked like stars, but the spectrum didn't look like stellar spectra. Um, the key advance came in the early 60s. Some quasars are also strong radio emitters. Um, and if you get a radio source like that, the first thing you do is try to find it with optical light because the optical telescopes have much higher resolution and you can get a lot more information. But radio telescopes don't give you very position, good positions, so they knew roughly some region that the quasar must be, but they couldn't uh, figure out which star it, it was. Right. Um, that problem was solved because it happened that there was a particular bright quasar that was in the path of the moon. And at one point in 1962, I think, they realized that the moon was going to cross in front of this quasar. And since you know the moon's orbit very accurately, if you can measure the time at which the light from the quasar disappears, you know exactly where the quasar is. And that gives you an accurate position. Um, once you had the accurate position, which was measured in Australia, you could identify which star it was, and the optical astronomers at Caltech were able to get a spectrum of it. Um, they, the person who had the spectrum, Martin Schmidt, uh, another Dutchman, uh, uh, puzzled over it for a long time and finally realized that it was an absolutely standard hydrogen spectra, but it was redshifted. Uh, that is, it was displaced from the usual wavelengths of the hydrogen line, and the only explanation was that this was traveling at, I think, 14% of the speed of light, and that meant that it must be very far away and participating in the cosmological expansion. So it looked just like an ordinary star, but it had to be maybe 100 billion times brighter than a typical star. Um, once you recognize this, once you recognize the extreme luminosity of the quasars, the reason you also figured out that they were in galaxies. You just hadn't been seeing the galaxy because it was lost in the glare of the quasar light. Um, then you have to figure out how something can shine so brightly. Um, 
and the arguments that it's a black hole start to multiply. First, black holes are much more efficient at converting mass into energy, probably a factor of 100 more efficient than even a nuclear reactor. And if you don't have a black hole, producing that luminosity, that rate of energy emission for the lifetime of a galaxy um, requires so much fuel that you can't find it even in a galaxy. Second, the quasars vary rapidly, and that means they have to be very small because otherwise you can't coordinate the variation across the size of the source. And the only objects we know of that can produce that much energy in that small a volume are the quasars. Third, in X-rays, they uh, can measure spectral lines of uh, some elements. The lines are grossly distorted, um, and the only way they can be made that broad and distorted is from if the gas is emitting from deep in the bottom of a gravitational, uh, gravitational well. Um, the arguments can go on, but uh, enough of them uh, uh, are now present and all the alternative models have become so improbable that it's absolutely clear that uh, by far the best explanation for quasar power is black holes. Once you know that, um, you can calculate how many black holes should be around that used to be shining as quasars, but maybe have lost their fuel supply or for one other reason or another are now dead. Um, and then you can look for those in nearby galaxies. Those arguments were motivated people to go and look in nearby galaxies for massive concentrations of material at the center. That was in fact one of the original uh, primary goals of the Hubble telescope when it was, was launched. By now, people with the Hubble and other instruments have looked in the centers of maybe close to 100 galaxies. And in most cases, they find large concentrations of dark mass, um, which, um, in, which almost certainly is a black hole. In the best cases, the best case in particular being our own galaxy, you have maybe four million times the mass of the sun in a volume that's not much bigger than the size of the solar system. And the only thing we know of that could be providing that is a black hole. Okay, so that's, uh, that's a great summary. Thank you very much. Uh, I have three questions. So my first question is on behalf of, again, the, the skeptical layperson. I can imagine that somebody who's not an expert in this might confuse the darkness from a black hole with, with dark matter. So I think it's probably worth pointing out that we're talking about something completely different there. Um, so I'm expecting you to say yes. Um, yes. Okay. Uh, the, that is, <laughs> if you look at most of the volume of a galaxy, most of the mass that you see is stars, absolutely ordinary vanilla stars. If you look at very large distances outside the stellar system, there's extra mass, which is, uh, Dark, what I'm referring to as dark matter. If you look at the very center, far inside the distribution of most of the stars, uh, there's extra mass, which is a black hole. Now you might say, why have two categories? Uh, you know, why not just call them both the same thing? But it's it's very clear that they're different. First of all, the mass in the black hole is very concentrated, and it's only a fraction of a percent of the mass of stars. The dark matter in the outer parts is 10 to 30 times the total mass of the stars. So just in terms of total mass, they're very different. In terms of density, they're very different in all of their properties. They're really quite different. The only property they share is that 
they're both dark, but that's not a surprise because if they were bright, we would have found them a long time ago. Yeah. Um, and and my, my second point is, is, is one, uh, again, getting back to the structural issue. So, okay, you've convinced me that um, in most of these, most of the galaxies in the, uh, through empirical studies, we've shown that there is this huge collection of, of mass at the core, and uh, we believe that that, for all sorts of reasons, um, that should be, that's equivalent to black holes, or black hole, big black hole. And so two follow-up questions. One is, most but not all, so what's, I'm presuming not all, uh, have we found, have we looked at some galaxies where we think that's actually not the case? And second of all, what's going on structurally, do we think, that that's actually causing that? Oh, right. So there are no cases in which we can show that the mass that we see in the centers of these objects is as small as the event horizon, the black hole. The best case, as I indicated before, is the, uh, the mass in the center of the Milky Way galaxy, where we can say that it's inside a volume about the size of the solar system. Right. In, in most other cases, we see these large masses up to a billion, few billion times the mass of the sun, but um, we can only tell that that mass is concentrated inside a volume that's thousands of times, still thousands of times bigger than the event horizon. Um, then the reason you think that it's a black hole is a process of elimination. Uh, it can't be stars because then we'd see the starlight and there's not enough starlight there to correspond to those masses. It can't be gas because the gas right. would emit in other wavelengths and it would also cool very rapidly. Um, it could be invisible stars like neutron stars, but you can show that the lifetime of such a system is much shorter than the lifetime of the galaxy, so that's implausible as well, and so forth. You can go through a process of elimination. Second, if we take all of these dark masses that we've discovered um, and add them up to calculate the overall density in the universe, and then we go back to the quasars and ask what density in black holes should be left over after as ash from all these quasars that burned early in the history of the universe. Uh, that number agrees within a factor of two with the mass that we find in these hypothetical dark objects. So that to me is a pretty strong indicator that they're one and the same object. That is, that the masses that we're seeing in the centers of galaxies are the ash left over from the black holes that were powering the quasars. Okay. Um, so you certainly convinced me, but um, I don't think I asked my question very well, so I'm going to ask it again. Um, so we have all sorts of evidence that points to uh, that's what these things are in the middle of these. So I would like to then have uh, a theory which says these things naturally and inevitably or at least statistically, it's very likely for them to form in that particular way. Um, do we have such a theory? Um, no, although I think not all my colleagues would agree with me. Uh, I think the current state of the theory is really to say, if you have a dense stellar system, um, what can it do? Uh, so you hypothetically make a dense stellar system like you might see in the centers of these objects. And then you ask, how will it evolve? Well, uh, some of the stars will collide and merge, forming bigger stars. Those stars will tend to collapse and form small black holes. Uh, if you have stars or small black holes, they'll lose energy by gravitational radiation, get 
smaller and smaller orbits and then coalesce. They'll form even bigger stars and bigger black holes. Uh, you can go through a whole set of these arguments and the general conclusion is that whatever you do um, through a wide variety of possible evolutions, it eventually ends up as a black hole. Uh, and so I think we don't have a persuasive theory as to why there are black holes there, but every other system that we can think of seems to eventually end up as a black hole. So what some of my colleagues would say, the issue is not finding a theory that um, uh, convinces you that you have to make a black hole. It's that black holes are such a natural outcome of many different evolutionary paths that the real challenge would be to find Uniqueness. something that doesn't produce a black hole. Yeah. Uh, so. You know, on the one hand, people may say black holes are so weird that the, that the you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, and so you really have to have really strong evidence that it's a, that it's a black hole. But given the experience uh, with the robustness of black holes in general relativity and with the necessity of having black holes to power quasars, I think it would be fair to make the argument that it's not an extraordinary claim at all. It's exactly what you would have expected. So that the onus is on people who think they're not black holes to prove that there's some viable alternative. Okay, so so let me be very simplistic for a moment. Um, so again, I can imagine without knowing anything about general relativity or anything like that, I know that gravity attracts. I've got a whole bunch of stuff that's a dense collection of whatever, stuff, stars, and all the rest of that. And then over time, it would start getting denser and denser, particularly in the core. Mm -hmm and I'd start getting these, these things that you're calling a black hole. Now, if I wanted to test that theory, um, which is to say whether the things that we are finding empirically are roughly the size of that black hole that you would imagine, I could just, I could, should be able to backdate it to our understanding of cosmology, how long these things have been around, at, uh, what size we would imagine your average black holes to be at this particular time. So I, I would imagine there being some ability to verify, not just that it's a black hole, but it should be roughly after this amount of time, statistically a black hole of this kind of size. Do you see where I'm, where I'm, what I'm, my, right. my point? So uh, in other words, the basic idea that you got a bunch of stuff and you have a black hole in the middle because that's the, the, the end state when you have a whole bunch of stuff that's attracting, okay, fair enough. Um, but I could imagine um, uh, an entire galaxy that's one big black hole after a certain amount of time, or I could imagine after a certain amount of time evolution, a very small black hole that, uh, before. So there, there, you would think that there should be some ways of saying, okay, given how old the, the, the universe is, given how old statistically uh, when galaxies have been forming and so forth, you should be able to put those things together. And yeah, not only is there a black hole in the middle, but it's roughly the same sort of size that one might expect from cosmological arguments. Right. Is, is that right? Is that, I mean, or is, there, or is there too much variation in the theory to be able to actually say anything explicit there? Uh, well, you've, you've hit on, I think, one of the, or a couple of the really active, unresolved questions in this whole process. Um, the first issue, which I think is somewhat worrying, is that we now see very large black holes, billion solar mass black holes, at redshift 7, which is when the universe was less than a billion years old. And when you try to construct those models, it's typically rather difficult to build big black holes so early. So somehow, Galaxies seem to be able to build black holes in a 
time scale that's less than 10% of the cosmological time scale. We don't understand how they do that. On the other hand, I'm not so worried because, as I said earlier, you know, we don't understand how to form stars, we don't know how to form planets, we don't know how to form galaxies. You're used to that. So I'm not so worried if we don't know how to form black holes. Um, the second reason why what, you've, what you're basically saying is why are the black holes a few tenths of a percent of the mass of the galaxy rather than much bigger or much smaller? Right. Um, the... That's a very fundamental question, which I think is probably the fundamental question in galaxy formation, uh, but I'd phrase it a little differently. The question is, I think, does the galaxy determine the properties of the black hole, or does the black hole determine the properties of the galaxy? The, galaxy, the black hole is only a tiny fraction of the mass in the galaxy, as I said, a couple tenths of a percent. But because the black hole is such a condensed object, the energy that was released in forming the black hole is much larger than the energy that was released in forming all the rest of the galaxy. So for example, if you make a typical black hole in the centers of, center of a galaxy and you feed back 1% of the energy that was released in forming the black hole, you can blow off and couple that to the gas in the galaxy efficiently, you can blow all the gas of the galaxy out. If you did that, there'd be no gas left, the black hole would stop growing. Um, so, the problem for understanding galaxy formation and black hole formation is that a tiny inefficient coupling at the level of 1% between the black hole formation and the gas in the rest of the galaxy can completely change the evolution of the rest of the galaxy and the, and the black hole. We see indirect evidence for this happening. Uh, many black holes uh, have jets of material that are uh, going out into the interstellar medium. There's evidence for bubbles around the end of these jets, which suggests that there's hot gas that's been uh, heated up by the impact of the jet from the black hole. So until we can understand the feedback at the 1% level, we're going to have a very hard time understanding in detail uh, the relation between the evolution of the black hole and the evolution of the galaxy. Cool. I want to talk a little bit about um, using galactic dynamics and, and our understanding of galactic structure as a probe for some, um, some other aspects in fundamental cosmology. We've talked about dark matter a little bit. Um, we haven't talked about things like inflation or things like dark energy or, 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 or anything like that. Um, my understanding is that, um, that there uh, there are ways, or there might be ways, uh, to with a with a more detailed understanding of, of of galactic dynamics to be looking for signals for inflation, to be looking for signals or confirmation for or aspects to, to to elucidate issues with respect to dark energy and so forth. Is that right? And it, and if so, tell me about those. Uh, well, the the main difficulty in doing that is that um, the physics that we know about physics of matter radiation is really complicated. Uh, there's um, star formation is, you know, where if you want to understand star formation, you have to understand uh, the relation between gas on scales of the whole galaxy and the gas on scales of the radius of the star, which is many, many orders of magnitude smaller. Uh, so paradoxically, the things that we know least about, that is dark matter and dark energy, are the things that are easier to cal easiest to calculate. And 
when we get to understanding star formation, the interaction between stars and the remaining gas, the formation of a black hole in the center, we really get challenged to understand things correctly. Um, so uh, the problem in using galaxies to probe dark matter and dark energy is that the processes going on in the baryonic part of a galaxy are much harder to understand than the processes going on with the dark matter and dark energy. Yeah. Um, where the galaxies are important is simply as <clears throat> test particles or as probes or as flashlights to map out the geometry of the universe. So you get tremendous amounts of information simply from the large-scale distribution, of the statistics of the large-scale distribution of galaxies. You can use galaxies uh, that are sometimes visible at very large distances to probe how the geometry of the universe changes with, uh, with, with distance. And in all of those cases, you're trying to work on scales big enough so that you're not affected by the detailed uh, physics that goes on within the galaxy, but just to use the galaxies as unbiased probes of uh, the structure of the universe on large scales. So the basic assumption is the properties of the galaxy over here and the properties of one over here are maybe different, but statistically they're determined by the same processes if the universe is homogeneous on, on, on the largest scales. This leads me to um, a bit of a sociological question. Um, so there's this um, question in the community or this issue or this word at any rate, which is sometimes thrown around this idea of fundamental and what, what is fundamental and what is fundamental physics and so forth. And in recent years, I think um, there has been a trend, by recent years I mean a couple of decades, there has been a trend towards people who call themselves doing fundamental physics often being pulled away from a lot of empirical verification and a lot of, for, for all sorts of reasons, for all sorts of not unreasonable reasons, namely it was hard to do, it wasn't, wasn't uh, a deliberate desire to, to eschew looking for uh, verification in the real world. Um, I'm, I'm hedging around because I'm trying to be a little bit respectful, but so let me, let me stop hedging a little bit. So you're what I would call a real physicist. I mean, y you have a deep, deep understanding of theory and theoretical structure, obviously, and mathematics, and it's not, there's no hand-waving involved whatsoever. But so much of what you've done in the past and so much of what you continue to do involves what we can actually talk about, look for, measure, uh, um, make predictions about, see if we can verify them in principle. Have you been frustrated by some trends in fundamental theoretical physics where people might spend an entire career without any possibility, any realistic possibility of actually having any empirical verification for what it is that they're doing? Well, only if their grant's bigger than mine. <laughs> um, well, I, I think that there is a problem for physics as a whole, uh, which has arisen because, uh, you know, testing, mo as, as experiments occur and theories get verified, there's a saying that you know, experiments consume theory. The, the theory that was worked on 50 years ago has been tested pretty thoroughly. Most of it's right, some of it's not right. But if you want to continue to, to develop your understanding of physics, you have to develop 
deeper theories that can only be tested by deeper and usually more expensive experiments. Uh, I have no problem if uh, uh, my colleagues are doing really good physics that um, is a long way from, uh, uh, from experimental test, but there is a problem for the community as a whole if, uh, if that situation continues. So the, uh, you know, the concern about the Large Hadron Collider is that if it turns back on again this year and doesn't discover some interesting things, it will be hard to know how to design the next accelerator, the next more expensive one, and perhaps hard to persuade uh, uh, the nations of the world to invest billions of dollars in what would be at some level a fishing expedition because you don't have the theoretical guidance to ask precise, well-formed questions. Um, that problem is most acute in um, elementary particle physics. It's beginning to become acute in uh, astrophysics. We're a little behind, and you can still do really important and interesting fundamental uh, physics with astrophysical missions that uh, although expensive, are still a much smaller fraction of nations' uh, science budgets. Um, but there is a real concern that in particle physics, we won't have new experimental data that uh, has really fundamental and puzzling new results that have to be explained that will give us some guidepost as to where to go. There is an emerging problem in astrophysics that if we continue not to find the actual dark matter, or if we continue to be unable to understand uh, the nature of the dark energy, then at some point we're going to have to take a hard look and figure out um, what to do next, because we can't keep building more and more sensitive detectors to look for the same uh, dark matter candidates uh, forever. At some point you have to say we've been barking up the wrong tree and we have to do something uh, different. Uh, my own um, uh, focus on what might be called non-fundamental physics is simply because I think all physics is interesting and it's most interesting when it's directly connected with either with data, with either experiments or uh, uh, observations. I think, uh, and I think there are cases where um, some of my, you know, some of the subject areas in astrophysics and particle physics that have not been connected with data have been much less productive than you might have hoped. In the 1980s, when inflation was developed, there was a real belief that um, there was this grand new synthesis in physics where the very small, that is particle physics, and the very large, that is cos cosmology, would come together and produce really radical and dramatic new insights. Um, and in a certain sense, that hasn't happened in the sense that we haven't really learned anything new about the fundamental structure of matter from astrophysics. Well, from astrophysics or from cosmology yet. We've learned some new things, for instance, from solar neutrino experiments, from cosmic ray experiments. But the grand vision that we would detect a particle that's responsible for the dark matter and that that would provide insight into the fundamental structure of physics, what would, how we should improve the standard model of particle physics, 
I think that has not happened yet. Um, I hope that it will, but you know, I think it is true that I have colleagues that have been trying to do that for, for decades and have had lots of good ideas, but less success than I think they might have hoped for initially. And since you brought up inflation, uh, which is fairly topical, there, there was this kerfuffle over this bicep uh, experiment and the interpretation and the, the, the way that findings were initially presented and then eventually recanted or at least minimized. Um, are there any lessons to be learned from, from any of that in your view? Um, well, I think that um, the lesson I took away or that I was um, disturbed by is that, of course, anybody can make a mistake. But uh, there was a lot of talk in the media about saying this is the normal process of science in which uh, and this is the way science works and this is why and this is the scientific process and this is how things are supposed to work. Um, I think that's not true. Um, you're not supposed to uh, uh, publish results that are incorrect and you're not supposed to have press releases about them. So I think this is emphatically the way science isn't supposed to work. I mean, the original result was, I think, a seven standard deviation result, which meant that it was supposed to be correct at the 99.9999% confidence level, and it wasn't. And I think anybody who, I think that was a blunder, and anybody who tries to sugarcoat it to make it look like it wasn't a blunder is uh, corrupting the scientific corrupting the public's view of the scientific process. And, you know, in the extreme case, you know, people will say, well, you know, they said that there was evidence for inflation and there wasn't. They say there's evidence for climate change. Maybe that's just as in, you know, maybe, maybe they don't know about that either. So, so they'll lose faith in the scientific process or, or, or not have sufficient understanding of the genuine scientific process. Um, I think that that is a real concern. And obviously you can't, put the genie back in the bottle, but at the very least, I think the people who made the mistake should uh, admit it and apologize. And uh, I think they're, uh, they have not been quite as forthright as that. Picking up on that to talk a little bit about science, the reputation of science in the, in the general public, um, are we doing a sufficiently good job generally, not looking at any one experiment or any one phenomenon? Are, 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 we, are we as a society doing uh, a sufficiently good job in, in explaining what science is, in explaining the scientific process, in, in educating our populace as to um, how to develop a, a deeper appreciation of what science is and, and, and how integral it might be? Um, and lastly, are there places more concretely, that are, that are actually doing it better than other places? Um, well, that's a highly politicized question, of course. Uh, but we know that... I you don't have to answer it. You, know, you can just say no comment if you want. To. Well, we, we know, for example, that I think something like half of the population in this country um, doesn't think the theory of evolution is correct. Is it half? Is it still half? Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it was more. I think it's 
better in European countries, but still there's a significant fraction of people who don't believe in it. Mm. And it seems to me that as long as that's uh, as long as that's the case, that's a pretty obvious initial step that we're not doing a good enough job at communicating uh, not so much the science, but the nature of the scientific process, how you, what the difference is between scientific fact and other kinds of uh, facts, um, and in developing an educated population that can distinguish uh, science from uh, non-science and make informed judgments about what you should believe and what you shouldn't believe. So how might we do that better? I mean, very concretely, better education, better awareness, and so forth. But, but might you be able to point to some concrete measures that, uh, that could be taken to improve the situation? Um, there, I think I will say no comment. This is, this <laughs> okay. is not a subject that uh, I've thought a lot about. I, I think the only thing I'd say is that, of course, lots of people have opinions on, on, on how to do better. But this is a question that's susceptible to scientific investigation. You know, people who do psychology and uh, other sociological disciplines know how to do this. And I think that the important thing would be to treat it as a scientific problem and try to understand uh, uh, scientifically what the best way to um, what the best way to do this would be. So let me be devil's advocate for a moment, because I, I talk to a lot of people who are very passionate about the importance of communicating science to the general public, communicating science responsibly, educating people responsibly. Um, obviously, these are goals that I subscribe to as well. But sometimes I wonder if any of this makes any difference whatsoever. So here's my devil's advocate position, which is for the vast period of human history, um, people, the vast majority of people have been incredibly ignorant about all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And science, nonetheless, uh, there were periods of highs and lows, of course, but, uh, but overall, uh, certainly over the last three or 400 years, there has been a fairly steady, uh, uh, consistent, monotonically increasing um, level of understanding and awareness which has developed across society. Um, and that in spite of the fact that um, there has not been at any time that I'm aware of overwhelming endorsement of the scientific process by society at large, huge overwhelming amounts of money being devoted to scientific endeavor. There have been little, you know, there was the the whole Kennedy thing with the moon and all that here and there. But by and large, um, science does not feature largely in public elections or scientific issues. Um, and so one might think, well, does it really matter? Um, science will just keep doing what it's doing. You're not doing what you're doing because you're, you're trying to get rich. Uh, you weren't doing what you were doing when you were an undergraduate or a graduate student because you were trying to get rich. You were passionately driven towards understanding the world around you and there are people just like you who are now coming through the ranks and it will never be thus and you will never be a majority but you will be actually driving society forwards in some non-trivial way and that's just the way it is and we shouldn't wring our hands or worry about it. Well first 
I think the counter argument to that is that science now plays a much larger role um, in life than it did 100 years ago or 300 years ago. The, a much larger fraction of the questions that politicians and society have to deal with are scientific questions. And uh, so that ranges from, of course, global warming, pollution, the environment, uh, issues of you know, biomedical issues, how to deal with Ebola, how to uh, uh, improve the health of the, uh, of the population as a whole, uh, even economics, you know, how, to, how to keep the, f the financial system stable. And nobody knows uh, the answer to that. Right. <laughs> uh, international competition and so forth and so on. Far more of these questions require scientific answers or at least informed technological answers than it did 100 years or so ago. Uh, so I think it is more important than it used to be simply because science has become more powerful and a bigger part of our lives. The, the second part of your devil's advocate answer was really more a question about support for science and science funding. And there, of course, I believe that science has been one of the main drivers of economic growth uh, in this country and most others. There are studies that agree with that, which I'm not expert on, so I won't try to, try to go into. Uh, so my personal belief is that science should be funded by a larger fraction of the national income than it currently is. Having said that, I have some sympathy for a different point of view, which is that many of my colleagues take the point of view, science is not adequately funded. We're going to push for an increase in the science budget in the next fiscal year. Um, and while I, I agree with that, and I think it's important, it doesn't address one of the major structural problems in the scientific enterprise, which is that much of the enterprise is built on the assumption that you're going to have exponential growth. Mm. Um, and you know, the relative numbers of graduate students, postdocs, people supported on soft money, faculty, national labs, all of these things are built on a model, an integrated model of the life cycle of a scientist um, or a scientific project or a scientific field that are all based on an assumption of exponential growth. And I think what the community has to ask itself is what's a viable or an optimal model of the scientific enterprise and the scientific community in a world where there's zero real growth? And until you have that vision in mind, and until you have a viable model in that form, asking, you know, putting your efforts into getting a 5% increase instead of a 3% increase in the next year's budget um, is not going to be very helpful. Because if you do succeed, as long as you're assuming exponential growth, all that's going to do is delay the the you know, the reckoning by another year or two. Right. So I think the community needs to think harder about how many graduate students they should train. Is it okay for graduate students to go and work in the, the data industry or the financial industry? Uh, and if so, is the best time after a bachelor's degree, after a master's degree, after a PhD, after a postdoc, um, what should be the ratio of postdocs to permanent positions? What's the optimum distribution between funding large projects and small projects? 
um, what's the optimum distribution between targeted grants and curiosity-driven grants. And all of that should be done in a context or a framework of uh, zero real growth. And that has not yet been happening. Are there indications that um, increasing numbers of people uh, are like-minded insofar as they believe that that should be the case as well? Are you a lone wolf out there? Are there is, that a growing, is there a growing sense of awareness that this should be done? Um, I think that, that um, there are some straws in the wind that say that uh, uh, this point of view is taking hold. There was a very influential paper uh, recently by, in the biology community um, arguing that our current model for funding research is broken and recommending some changes along these lines. Uh, but I think it's uh, not a general point of view yet. And I think it's a point of view that people have been tiptoeing around but not really addressing uh, head on. Um, I'm, I'm almost done with you. You've been <laughs> very good with your time. Uh, I'd like to return to science and ask you what's keeping you up at night. So the standard question that, that I, I tend to ask is uh, if I were some omniscient being and I could provide you with the answer to any question you should ask me, what would you ask? About, you could provide an answer to scientifically. any question. Scientifically. Scientifically. Um, in terms of your research, in terms of things you're just idly wondering about, uh, what, what are, I'll give you three. What are the, what are, you don't have to use them all, but you have, uh, you have three issues that, that, that I could provide you instantaneously um, the answer to, and, and I'm wondering what they would be. Um, what's the nature of dark energy? What's the nature of dark matter? How do you unify quantum mechanics and general relativity? That was easy. That was easy, yeah. I, 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 was, uh, I, was, hoping for, I was hoping for some others, but... Uh, hoping for something easier. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I don't have to do it. It was just I. Well, you only gave me three. All right, I'll give you. I'll give you two more. I'll give you two more. If somebody's omniscient, you shouldn't uh, waste your uh, opportunity. Fair enough. On, I'll, I'll, so I'll give you two more. So those are those are those are three that I that I guess I I, I should have given you five. I'll give you two more. Um, what was the chemical mechanism for the origin of life on Earth? Um, and um, uh, how common is uh, life and in what form on other planets. Well, you're taking no time at all. I'm thinking about giving you another five, but we should, we should, <laughs> we should probably. Well, what I should do is ask what, you must have asked this question before. What do other people say? Well, um, it's usually much more particular to their research. Um, so I, I, I haven't talked to as many physicists because yeah, I, I don't really like that many of them. So I only talk to the ones I like. <laughs> so, so we, we don't I assume to, you're going to edit this out. That <laughs> could be. Uh, uh, is there anything we missed? Is there anything that you'd like to add that uh, we haven't had a chance to get to? No, I think uh, you've covered everything. Well, it's been a lot of fun, Scott. Thanks okay. a lot. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations about Astrophysics and Cosmology, along with separate discussions with Justin Curry, Rocky Cole, Roger Penrose, and Paul Steinhardt. 
Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.